and trust that those of you that have been away and for the holiday that you've had a good time, good trip, <coughs> enjoyed that. For those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we're and we have several visitors as a matter of fact, we're glad you're here. I hope that uh, you're able to come back and be with us in the future and I hope that especially we make you feel welcome and that you'll want to be back with us. We're going to continue our study this morning. We're talking about this year, Be Holy, God Says, For I Am Holy. And in this particular quarter, we're talking about worship, and we're talking about the idea of being holy, and that is to be distinct, to be set apart, to be special as we worship God. And I want to look at an idea this morning, something that was said by the prophet Samuel, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, I didn't ask Edward to read the passage in Micah, but it prefaces this lesson very well and uh, may make a reference or two uh, to that passage as we go through the lesson. To obey is better than sacrifice. Let's start off with an observation. I can get this to work. (laughs) Come on. Please. There we go. Let's try that. Okay. People, when they view worship, just the idea, not necessarily of coming to worship as we had this morning, but worship in any sense. When they view worship or service to God, and I think a lot of people would rather look at the idea of service, doing service, doing an act, etc., rather than the idea of worship. You remember worship, and I'm not going to belabor this, but you remember worship had to do with adoration, with affection. It comes from a word, remember, of that dog licking the hand of its master because it loves the master so much, etc., I think people really look more at the idea of sacrifice, though, of doing service to God in general. And they look at it as a sacrifice because if they're doing something for God, they are sacrificing their time. I mean, let's be honest. There are probably 25 other things that you could think of you could be doing this morning, but you've, quote, given your time to come to church. So people talk about giving their time or even sacrificing their time, their their efforts, their money. And I believe a lot of people think in terms of what they do for God as some great act in life. They give of themselves. Maybe they give a heroic act because the situation demanded it, or they're very philanthropic, they give some money, they're charitable, etc. And they think in terms of doing this as a sacrifice for God, and that God is pleased with that. They assume God must be pleased with their service because they're, quote-unquote, making a sacrifice to give it. And I think some even figure the more they sacrifice, the more pleasing they are to him. You read comments sometimes, and I, and I do this from time to time. I read comments of people that are very well known. I'm not going to call any names. But if you listen to them as they talk about their charity, or they talk about perhaps the service that maybe they build a very successful business, and they're worth a lot of money, and they can retire but then they take that time and they begin to be charitable or give their time in service to others. They will speak of it in the terms that I'm talking about here. They want to give. They want to give. And if they're religious people, if they believe in God, they look at it like giving back to God or sacrificing to God. And they really believe that will earn or incur God's being pleased with them because They could do whatever they chose to do. They had the money, they had the means, etc. Now let's go with that idea a little further. Service to God obviously involves a sacrifice. Again, let's be honest. There are other things I could be doing this morning. 
I have things to do. I always have a running to-do list. I don't know if you guys do or not, but I do. And I'm always behind on it. (laughs) So there are always things I can do. I could give up my time. I could take the money that I just put into the basket, and I have plenty of other things I could do with it. And we could go on and on with that, but the point is, service to God obviously involves a sacrifice, and it's clear, though, that while God is pleased with the sacrifice that He wants, what He is really pleased with is obedience. Now, think with me for a moment about the difference between sacrifice and obedience. Obedience always includes a sacrifice. If you obeyed God by coming to church this morning, you sacrificed some time. If you obeyed God by giving a contribution, as, as, we, as Edward was talking about it a moment ago, you gave a sacrifice. You sacrificed to give it. It always involves it. But notice, it supersedes sacrifice. It's more than that. Sacrifice is not necessarily equivalent to obedience. In other words, you can sacrifice without obeying anything. You can sacrifice just to please yourself. And some do that. They give up their time. They give up their means, etc. Just because it feels good. And there's no obedience there. They wouldn't say, God made me do this, or God told me to do this, or I'm doing it because God has commanded it. They just simply feel good about doing it. That's why, for example, an atheist can be very charitable. It feels good. They get something out of it, etc. But they're not obeying a commandment of a higher power. So sacrifice is not necessarily equivalent to obedience because it often does not go far enough. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Let's make again a further observation. The story in 1 Samuel 15, I'd like for you to flip over there for a moment. I'm not going to read all of this. You probably know the story. But to set the story, notice in verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, now we're talking about the prophet Samuel, the final high priest who was also a judge, etc. But he came to Saul, because God told him to do so, and Saul is the king here. He said, the Lord sent me to anoint you to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, you are king, and now here's what God wants you to do. Now, therefore, hearken you, or thou, unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Here's what the Lord says. I remember that which Amalek did to Israel. And you can go back, and I'm not going to do that this morning. You can go back earlier in their history, and you can see what the nation of Amalek did in defying God, in persecuting Israel, etc. I remember what Amalek did. And how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now here's what I want you to do. God is judge. God executes vengeance, as Edward read from Hebrews 10. God wants vengeance executed by the nation of Israel. And that's one of the things that nations do at the bidding of God. I want you to go to Amalek. Now this may seem to us very harsh, but that really isn't the point. This is the judgment that God rendered. Go and smite or kill Amalek. I want everything utterly destroyed. All that they have. I don't want anything spared. Now that's pretty clear language. He says, both man and woman, little child and infant, suckling child, all the ox, which is a general word for animals, including the sheep, the camels, the donkeys. I want 
everything killed that lives and breathes in Amalek, I want it killed. Now again, we can talk about why God would say that, the extent of the judgment, that's another lesson. But the commandment is clear. I want it utterly destroyed. Now you know the story here. And again, I'm not going to read every verse, but if we follow down through the the verses, here's what happened. He went to Amalek. He wiped out most of the nation. He spared the king, as we realize. King Agag is his name. Verse 8. He took Agag, king of Amalek, alive. And he utterly destroyed all the people. He took some of the animals. Verse 9. The best of the animals, especially the oxen, the sheep. He saved them back. And he came back to Israel. Now, we might ask a question, and if we were talking about another lesson, the whole idea of authority and so forth, we might say, did he obey God? We would ask that question. What did God command? Did he obey God? But the story is very clear. Go destroy everything. Wipe out everything that lives and breathes. He did that, except he kept back the king, he kept back the best of the animals. So verse 10, Samuel came to him. Did you obey God? I'm going to paraphrase here. I sure did. You did? Well, what about the king? Oh, well, I, I, I spared him because the people. You know, the people said, don't, don't do that. What about these animals? What means the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? I hear them. You obeyed God? I sure did. I, I, I kept back the animals, and he very quickly began to offer excuses. God gave specific instructions to Saul, but Saul disobeyed. And I want to... Uh, take a look at exactly how Saul disobeyed. First of all, generally when you study this story, a lot of people in, in school, they would always question his motives. Well, his motives may have been wrong. I don't know why, I know what he said, but I don't know exactly why Saul kept back King Agag or kept back the, the, you know, the best of the animals. People begin to read into the story and say he wasn't sincere. He was keeping that for himself. He wanted to make a show with King Agag. All of these things enter into the story. His motives may have been wrong. They probably were. He likely was insincere. But the disobedience really came. I don't know why this thing is not wanting to work this morning. No? Can't get it. That's weird. Uh, There's another, another little box up there that won't come in. But regardless, when you look at this story, that without question, he disobeyed God because God said, kill everything. He did not obey all God said do. He did not specifically do what God said do. And so, when he was confronted, he offered the explanation that his intent was to make a sacrifice. I kept back the best of the animals to make a sacrifice to God, Saul said. That's why if you look at the at chapter 15 and down in verse 22, Samuel said, Has the Lord a great delight? Remember what Edward read in Micah 6? What, what is God pleased with? What does he require? What does he want? All of these sacrifices you can make. He said, Does the Lord have a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And this is where we get our title and where we get our main point. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken, which means to listen, to hear God, and submit to God, is better than the fat of rams. You say you kept all these animals back to make a big sacrifice. That may look good. 
And people might look at it like, wow, what a great big sacrifice so-and-so made, Saul made in this case. Is that what God wants? No. We think of Mark chapter 12, and I cited it last week, and I'll do it again. We think about the people who pass by and cast in of their abundance. And maybe someone would watch some person very well off put in a large amount of money and say, wow, what a sacrifice. What a great thing that person has done. And then there is this widow, and she only has two of the lowest denomination of coins in the land. That's all she has, and she puts it in, and Jesus said, that's it, right there. That's the one. Because it's more than a sacrifice. It's obeying even when you don't think you have the means to obey. It's giving to God first before you think of yourself. It's looking at what you have and saying, it is not important that I have. What is important is to obey God. And Saul didn't do that. Saul offered the excuse. He was making a sacrifice. But God is dissatisfied with all disobedience, no matter the level of sacrifice. If I give more than everybody in the room, and I give it for any other reason than to obey God, it means nothing to God. Would I be satisfied, God says, with thousands of rounds? No. I would be satisfied with the person who walks humbly with me and gives what he gives because of that. To, I don't know what's going I may have to abandon this altogether. To obey is better than sacrifice. It was supposed to, to obey better than sacrifice. Let's hope this slide works better. So let's ask the question. Is attention to detail? And we look at this passage, and sometimes we look at the passage, and all we are concerned with in the passage is the detail. Again, he didn't obey all God said do, and so we begin to talk about specific commands, and we focus only on that, and I think we miss the point sometimes. So let's ask the question, is attention to detail the same as obeying the commandments of God? God wants, and don't misunderstand, please don't leave here and say, Michael said it's not important to pay attention to details in the Bible, because I don't believe that. I'm a person very detail-oriented. In fact... Montel and Jules, they they can tell you I'm extremely detail-oriented. But the point of this passage is not just the detail. When you look at this, God wants, He wants that religious, that dedicated, you know, determined, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, consistent attention to detail. He wants that, but more than that, He requires a wholesale, that is total commitment from me. Not just a list of details. And I want you to see the difference. When God gave the commands back in the beginning of 1 Samuel 15, it wasn't just a list of details. Like a laundry list or a grocery list that Montel makes out for me sometimes. Go to the store, you know, check it off. And I literally do as I walk around the store. It's not just that list. It's more than that. It's total wholesale commitment to God from my heart. Look with me at Matthew 23, and something very interesting Jesus said, and you know I quote this quite a bit, but it's because to me, in one sense, it's very strange, and in another sense, I think it embodies exactly what the Lord wants. When you look at Matthew 23 and go down, he's, he's uh, blasting, if you will, the Pharisees here for being hypocrites. 
And what he says to them in verse 23 is, woe unto you. Woe is a word for judgment. To you, you scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. Now notice what he says in verse 23. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. These are very small spices. Uh, Wes made reference to this recently. The idea of literally counting the leaves on a plant. Every tenth one, you know, pick it off and give it to God. He said, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but you have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Sounds very much like the passage in Micah, doesn't it? The weightier matters of law, like judgment and mercy and faith. These, notice, the mint, the anise, the cumin, the counting the leaves. You should have done that. A lot of times people will look at this passage and say, you know, God doesn't care about getting on your hands and knees and and counting off one out of every ten leaves. Oh, yes, He does. He really cares about that. Sometimes people will look at this and they'll equate, you know, tearing off the leaves with some of the smaller details of obeying God. And they'll say, God doesn't care about that. And He doesn't care about that. And He doesn't care about that. Just love people and forgive people. Oh, Jesus said, you you really ought to be on your knees counting the leaves. Because you really ought to be concerned with every little detail of what God has said. But, if that's all you're doing, if you're so wrapped up in getting on your knees and counting the leaves of the plant that you miss the bigger picture, the faith, the mercy, the judgment, the walking humbly with your God, Micah 6, then you've blown it. These ought you to have done, but not to leave the other undone. Notice as he goes on to explain it, verse 24. You blind guys that strain at a gnat, which isn't necessarily wrong. Sometimes I'll hear people talking about attention to detail, and they say, man, you're straining at a gnat. And I'm inclined to say, good. You know, that's good. Strain the gnat. But don't swallow the camel. How can a person strain in that, be so concerned with every tenth leaf, and not be merciful to someone? Not love, not forgive, not see that bigger picture. How can you do that? Jesus said, you're a blind guy. Woe unto you, scribes, verse 25, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. But within they are full of extortion and excess. You think about people. How many people in this world this day will clean themselves up, dress themselves up, look good, look nice, smell good, etc., because they are, quote, going to church. And they will look good. And they will look clean. And they may even look righteous. And inside is pure filth. Jesus said, you're a blind guy. You make clean the outside. You blind Pharisee, verse 26, clean first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. He goes on, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are likened to whited sepulchers. You know, when I was down in Haiti, and some of you are from Haiti and so forth, when I was down in Haiti, and I, I, I would take notice of these elaborate tombs. And that's kind of left over, without a history lesson, left over from the previous culture and so forth. But I was reminded of this passage. They're like whited sepulchers, that is, tombs that are clean and bright and painted even, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside. But within, the people are dead. Dead bones, that's all you have. And all kinds of uncleanness, bacteria, etc., that goes with dead people. 
And it doesn't matter how beautiful it looks on the outside. And he says, even so you are, you outwardly appear righteous unto men. But within, you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. God wants the religious attendance to detail. He wants that meticulous, you know, like we do when we're cleaning ourselves up. Every hair in place. Spiritually, religiously, He wants that. But if all I'm doing is cleaning myself up and every hair in place, and the heart ain't in it, what good is it? That's what he said. In James 2, and I won't turn to that passage, but you may remember to offend, to stumble in one point, is to be guilty of all. And what you see in that passage, without going to it, what you see in that passage is a deliberate disobedience of a big thing, as we would look at it. Somebody comes into the assembly of God, and you're prejudiced toward them. Oh, you don't steal, you don't commit adultery, but you're prejudiced? You offend in one point, you're guilty of the whole law. But that applies to everything. In fact, this is what the Lord said. People will come to Him on Judgment Day and they will say to Him, Master, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in Your name? And they'll list them for Him. And He'll say to them, Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity. Listen to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Master, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we get on our hands and knees and count the leaves of the plants, man? Yeah, you did that. And I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I was looking for that person that the reason they were on their hands and knees is because they loved me so much. It wasn't to make a big show. It wasn't to make a big sacrifice. It wasn't to be able to say, I get on my hands and knees and count the leaves. It was to do that because they loved me so much. In Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, Paul said. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet it's not I. It's Christ who lives in me. So the life that I and I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Paul might say, that's why I get on my hands and knees and count the leaves. Because I love Him so much. A person may religiously attend to certain details of the truth without really committing to serve the Lord. And we see that. We see that in people that are meticulously attending to some detail in life. Or a group of details, a list. And yet, there's no real service to God. God expects that wholesale service, that total commitment. People place great emphasis on the details they attend because it requires a sacrifice. If I'm going to get on my hands and knees, I've got to sacrifice that effort to get down there and count the leaves. God wants the detailed effort, but not in place of the obedience. Let me give you one other quick illustration to make the point, and then I'm going to close. For example... Is being sorry the same as repentance? A person sins, and they feel bad, and you should. Your conscience ought to bother you, and if you're getting to the point where you can sin and your conscience just really isn't bothering you anymore, you better be scared, worried. It ought to be on your mind. I sinned. I did that. It was horrible. It ought to bother you. It ought to break your heart. It ought to tear you up. But is that 
the sacrifice in life God wants. The person will say, yes, what he wants. Is that all he wants? Is sacrifice, the sacrifice of being sorry, even of confessing it, is that the same as repentance? Let's make the point. God certainly wants the remorse, the contrition, you know, the broken and contrite heart that David spoke of in Psalm 51. He wants that. But more than that, God wants genuine repentance, change in us. We go back to Psalm, and I want you to turn with me to Psalm 51 very quickly. And this is where David has sinned with Bathsheba. And David is confessing that sin in this psalm, and he's, you know, remorseful. He's filled with remorse about it. And if you go down to verse 16 near the end of the psalm, David said, you do not desire sacrifice, else I would give it. If all God required was running down to the, the temple and saying to the priest, I bought the breast, I, I brought the best ram, the best sheep, the best oxen I have in my flocks, my herds, I brought these to sacrifice to God. Maybe he carried a lot of them. And I don't want to just give one, I want to give, you know, a great percentage of what I have because I did this horrible thing. Now that's the way people are a lot of times. I did this terrible thing. It's horrible. I'm brokenhearted over it. And I need to make some big sacrifice to, quote, unquote, make up for what I've done. This is what David said. You know, you don't want sacrifice. If you did, I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. When God sees a person who is trying to come up with a big enough sacrifice... To make up for a big sin, God said, that's not what I want. David says, I'd give it if that's what you wanted, but you don't. The sacrifices of God, verse 17, are a broken spirit. Really. Not just, man, I feel bad about that, but tomorrow, you know, I'll listen to a good song and I'll watch a good movie and I'll just forget it. That's not a broken spirit. A broken spirit. That's what God delights in. That's the real sacrifice. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. You won't disregard that. And he goes on. Do good, verse 18, in your good pleasure, undesired. Build the walls of Jerusalem. You see what he's saying there? There's going to be a change in me, God. I'd run down there and I'd give all these animals in sacrifice if that would make up for what I've done, but it won't. But my spirit is broken. My heart is broken. I hate what I did. I hate what my sin led to. And it will be different. God said, that's what I want. You go out and you do good. You commit to me with everything you have. And that's enough. And I'll forgive you. You see, that's the point. And when you look at 2 Corinthians 7, I won't turn there and read it, but... Godly sorrow worketh or produces repentance. David was a changed man after the sin of Bathsheba. You can read the story and see it. Never again will David be the same that he was. David will go back to being that guy so full of faith, that guy so full of love and commitment to God. Oh, a giant? I'll take care of that. Because God is with me. God wants me to go out there. Nobody is going to stand out there and talk about my God like that. He'll go back to being that young man. And he will totally get away from the 
guy that's the center of the parade where everybody dances and, you know, he just women throw themselves at him and he takes advantage of it. He'll totally get away from that. He'll leave all that behind. And God will say, that's a man after my own heart. That's the difference, a change. A person can say, I'm sorry. And they can ask forgiveness without really repenting. And the repentance, the change is what's important. God is a forgiving God. He wants to forgive us. No doubt about it. That's what He wants to do. And yet He expects repentance from us. Real change. You know, we all know this. And yet, a lot of times, people, good people, live as though they don't. You cannot go back and undo something you've done. It's not possible. There is no traveling back in time, you know, Einstein, Rosen, etc., notwithstanding. It's, it's just not going to happen. I can't go back in time, and I can't change the events of history. And I'll tell you something else. God would tell us you can't make up for what you've done. Because one sin is enough to send you to hell, and there is nothing on earth and no amount of sacrifice on earth that can make up for it. Only Jesus could give what would make up for it. And He did. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't want the tons of sacrifices, the thousands of animals, the ten thousands of rivers of oil, or whatever it is that you want to sacrifice. It's not what I want. I want you. And I want you to change and give yourself to me. And if you do that, then I'll say, I'll say to obey is better than sacrifice. You know, the mistake of King Saul is still a threat. Same thing that went on in Saul's mind, whether it was insincerity, and probably was, I don't know, but the disobedience there, for whatever reason, Whatever excuses we may offer, whatever thought processes we may have, it's the disobedience, and that's a threat to all of us. People convince themselves that their sacrifices will incur God's pleasure. God will be pleased with me because I did so much. Let me tell you something. Montel knows this because we talk about this a lot. You know, being a preacher carries with it a great threat. Because you can begin to look at your life and you can begin to say, boy, I gave my life to God. I made a big sacrifice. Kind of like the song we sing sometimes. I've done so much. Look what I've done for you, God. And you have to step back and take a look at that and say, wait a minute. (laughs) Hold on a minute. No, it's not about what you've done. You gave yourself. That's what we all do. In whatever we do, we give ourselves to God. It's about Jesus gave Himself. It's a great threat. We convince ourselves, God is going to be pleased with me because I've done so much. God wants our obedience. And He's not going to be pleased with anything less than a mindset that says, I will do whatever you want me to do. I always go back when I get off on my thinking. I go back to the Apostle Paul and I look at all the mistakes. And man, they were big mistakes. People died from his mistakes. And when Jesus met him on the road, he let all that go. And he said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And he spent the rest of his life trying to do that. And that's where you are. God is pleased with you. 
God is not mocked, never fooled. He's only pleased with that total commitment, like Ed read for us in Galatians 6. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might look at your life and you might say, I've done so much, I've committed a lot of sins, God would never forgive me. Yes, he will. God will forgive you if you, like David, would say, I know there's nothing I can do to make up for my sins, but I'll give you my life, and I'll give you everything I've got, and I'll do the best I can for you. God would say, that's what I want. Do you believe in me? If you'll confess your belief in Jesus, that he's the Son of God, if you're willing to repent, to change your life, then you can be baptized. And all those sins, as great as they may be, and you may have a lot of them, They'll be washed away by the blood of Jesus. And then you begin your life with Him. And you may mess up. And at some point in your life, you may look at some sin or a group of sins or a period in your life, and you might say, that is so bad, and I knew better, and God will never forgive me. Yes, He will. If He would forgive David, at that point in David's life, He will forgive you. Won't you please come while I'm the Eddie leads us in this song?